0: Good morning. That was great. Where are my recycled teenagers? Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you're a recycled teen. Raise it proud. Okay, so you all sit on this side, I see. Just want to give you guys a shout out. I had a lot of fun with you this past Tuesday. Listen to me, church. David has been keeping the recycled teens all to himself. Don't let him do that anymore. They are more fun than any of you dullards. I am telling you, they taught me how to have fun. I thought I was doing a favor by going on the, on the, uh, the, the luncheon that David takes uh, the recycled teenagers on once a month. I thought I was doing them a favor. I was going to drive them because they needed me to drive them. No, they drove me. I was going to help pay for them. No, they bought me lunch. And I went home with a pound of bacon. <laughs> Nothing better than a pound of bacon. That was fun. And the whole ride, you know, you, know, you, know, they're sweet, recycled teenagers. The whole ride back, Etzel and Paul Sneed gave me... Uh, what's the word? a politically correct word for crap. Crap. gave me crap the whole way back. That was fun. I'll see you on the next one. I'm going. We're starting a new series. I'm starting a new series, and you're coming along for the ride. The title of this series is True Worship. We're going to talk about worship for the next six or seven weeks. The goal of this sermon series is to explain and exhort the church to worship God in spirit and truth. In other words, the goal of this series on worship is to worship the true God truly. To worship the true God truly. Worship in America has, in recent years, fallen on hard times. Reports frequently come out that the American church, specifically the American Christian, does not attend worship services like he or she used to. What used to pass for faithful church attendance and faithful church worship from the average American Christian, listen to me, was three times a week. That's how I grew up. We went to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday. So three times we worshiped, Sunday morning and Sunday evening and Wednesday night. We went to Sunday school. Our our lives really centered around the worship of God. Today, what passes for faithful worship from American Christians is worshiping God three times a month. A month. So at least one less than what God mandated in the law of the Sabbath worship. And we think that because of that, we're more liberated and we're more free because we have more time to ourselves. But That's a wrong understanding of what worship is. Worship is for you directed to God. It is the most enjoyable experience that a person who knows God can have is to worship God. It is unfortunate, however, that even when we do come, our minds aren't centered on worship. Mark Cosper says in his book, Rhythms of Grace, a major problem in our lack of worship today is the consumer mindset of the American Christian. We've been taught in our churches and in the Christian marketing subculture around us to treat music As another product to consume, just as we have the rest of our faith. If something, he continues, Cosper continues, if something doesn't meet our preferences, note that word, preferences, not truth, but preferences, we've learned to discard it, to join another church, and to simply just buy a different CD. We've learned to be spectators on Sundays, listening and enjoying and critiquing, but the Bible unapologetically calls us to be participants in worship. If church members don't come to church with an attitude of worship, they are not likely to engage. In other words, what Cosper is saying is that Good Sunday Christian worship begins with your heart. We we love the musicians and we love Kathleen as she leads us in our worship every Sunday. I know her commitment to the truth of God's Word and that as she searches our music and our songs... Her first commitment is not, does it sound good? It is, does this song reflect the truth of God? And if she is faithfully doing that, if you can come into church and say, I got nothing out of the worship service this morning, whose problem is that? Hers or yours? I am saying that you can make worship in whatever church, regardless of your preferences, a spectacular experience if your heart is right. I have been to many different types of churches with many different expressions of music that I don't happen to love to listen to. But the joy of truth, of the gospel that I have staked my life on, brings out my expression of worship. What is more, emotionalism has become the example of true Christian worship today. Frantic frenzies and sad spectacles have become the normal mode of religious worship on Christian television. These uncontrollable spectacles are a far cry from the true self-controlled worship of the Spirit and do not reflect the New Testament attitude of worship. Today, uncontrollable, uncontrollable frenzies are what many Christians think reflect true spiritual worship. Yet when Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control, it says nothing of a lack of self-control. He emphasizes that the real fruit of the Spirit is lived out in this way and not in other ways. And many Christians today think that a frenzy, an uncontrollable frenzy means true worship. Listen to me. That is not true worship. I I will contend with you all day long, go to the Word of God, if you can show me that that the Word of God promotes uncontrollable, unknowable worship of God. If you can show me that that's the theme of Scripture, I'll be convinced. But what Scripture tells us is that every form of worship is to be done in two ways. In spirit and in what? Truth. And it is to be controlled. It is my hope that this sermon series will clearly explain true Christian worship according to the Bible and encourage you to worship God in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, I am inadequate apart from your spirit. My words are tainted in sin apart from your word. Lord, we pray, all of us here today, including me, that you would reveal to us through your word your truth. Let us worship you as the true God And let us worship you truly. God, create in us, stir in us a heart that loves truth. Remind us of the gospel. Let us not forget those those magnificent, mighty works that you have done. And let us stake our lives on the God who acts. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to define worship for you this morning. And I want this to be a guiding definition throughout our series. Here is the definition, my definition, of what worship is. It's a long one, so you're going to have to have patience with me as I explain it. Worship is the outward expression of the heart's estimation of God's worthiness. Let me say that again. Worship is the outward expression of the heart's estimation of God's worthiness. So what we do with our, with our outside, with our outward expression, reveals on the inside what we truly believe about God. And Take, for instance, the many people who stayed home today to watch the Dolphins game since that starts at 9.30 this morning. When the Dolphins score a touchdown, which will be at least once, not according to, well, last week we did in the final seconds of the... Game gosh, I hate the Jets. Anyway, when the Dolphins score a touchdown, we jump up, and we cheer, and we paint our faces, and we wear stupid costumes, because we want you to know we love them. We love them. We're on their side. We are going to be ride or die. And even though they never make the playoffs, we're going to be there every Sunday. Come hell or high water, we are a dolphin fan through thick and thin. Do you see where I'm going with this? And then many of us come into church, the God of our salvation, and we can't even keep our eyes open. I know I'm not boring. I mean, this right here, what I'm doing is either crazy or it's just good teaching, but it sure isn't boring. And this is our posture. Let it be our favorite musician, and we're up dancing, and we're having a blast because we're excited. They're our favorite. We're on their side. Worship is the outward expression of the heart's estimation of God's worthiness. Furthermore, worship is an entire world of life expression by which God's people do everything to glorify him. Everything. Paul says, even in, even in the small things, even in, in eating and drinking, we do it to the glory of God. Worship is to be conducted according to God's word and is not to be expressed in ways that are contrary to divine prescription. When, I, I love the word prescription because when we're sick and the doctor writes us a prescription and tells us to take these pills on this day at this time, you better take it or you're not gonna get better or you're not gonna be doing it right. Scripture is our divine prescription for Worship. Not, not your feelings. Trust that God knows what you need better than you do. We get at our kids, we get mad at our kids, because our kids constantly ask us, why? Why do we have to do that? And our response is always, because I know better than you do. And we just wish our kids would understand that. But adults were just like that with God. God tells us that this is the way to worship and to love me. And we look at God and say, no, I got a better way. I got a better way. Lastly, the chief expression of worship is communal, that means together. Whereby God's people unite for the single purpose to glorify the name of Christ above all names. Everyone understands that there is nothing better than communal worship and communal proclamation except for the Christian. I talk to Christians all the time who tell me, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I worship God on the boat. I worship God on the sea. I worship, and we're really impressed by that, aren't we? Now, when you're surfing on Saturday, absolutely glorify God. But what does that have to do with your communal worship? America is so full of causes today. This life matters and that life matters. And this guy said this and that guy said that. And what's the first thing they do? They group up. And they march together and they try and promote, get everybody here so that the whole world will see what we're proclaiming and they'll take notice. Last week, we watched and we all had an opinion. I've seen a commercial this week. I've never seen anything like this. It's so strange. I've seen a commercial for a public opinion that you can vote on what you believe, yes or no, about the NFL players. And we're all so opinionated about that. But at the very least, we're all talking about it. Why? Because they were all joined together. Why then, Christian, do you think that you can be satisfying to God apart from the body? That is crazy. No one knows what you stand for while you're at home. Bedside Baptist is not a legitimate church. And Pastor Sheets is ever a liar. We have to be together. The greatest expression of our gospel, the gospel of impartiality, the gospel of grace, the gospel of faith, is when we all come together. Oh, if God could only tear off the roof of this church right now and let every American see that red and yellow, black and white love each other because we have one Lord, we would solve so much. Are you listening And reading the heartbeat of the American culture today. Listen to me. What they are telling you. Both sides is that they are not going to listen to reason. Both sides. It's broken down. They're done. So now the only solution Christian is. Trust me on this. Supernatural. You want to be part of the solution. Worship God. Amen. Now, some of you don't like that. That's fine. Blog about it on Monday. But right now, listen to me right now. If we don't redeem through the only Redeemer, Jesus Christ, nothing will be redeemed. Let me talk about the purpose of worship. I have five points. These are just thoughts in selected scriptures. So I want to give you five thoughts that I believe is the true biblical purpose of worship. Number 1, if you have your Bibles, turn in them to Genesis 126 and 27. The first purpose of worship The first purpose of worship is to fulfill the very reason for our existence. Look at verses 26 and 27 of chapter 1 of Genesis. Have you, ever, you ever been around, you know, you go to the, 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 the uh, introductory class to, to religious studies at your local university and the, or the, the introduction to philosophy class and the first question that's quasi-philosophical that's asked is, what is the meaning of life? And everybody's looking. I think the meaning of life is this. And no one has the same answer. And it can't be the meaning of life over here. We've got to find one truth to what the meaning of life is. The answer is right here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Look no further. Then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. Here's what they are. Here's what they're to do. We're not a higher evolved primate. That doesn't do justice to our appetite for an explanation of human existence. But what does is that we're created after the image of God. And let them have dominion over the fish. That means let them rule. We get to rule the earth. The fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In other words, from the greatest to the least, God has made us to rule the earth. To have authority and have stewardship of his creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. How did he create man? The the word there, man, is the word Adam. It's a generic Hebrew word for man, and it becomes the personal noun or personal name for the first man, Adam. Man, how did he create him? He created man, how? Male and female. The next question that you have if to, after you leave your philosophy class, you go over to the ethics course, and the ethics course asks you the question, what is gender? And God tells you right here, gender is man and woman. And what we thought was so basic to human anatomy and self-obvious has now become a philosophical question. And God says it's this simple I made man in my image. I made him male and female. You say, how is God a woman? No, but God is diverse. God is one in essence. He is three in person. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All one God, but different functions. You want to see, when, when, when you look at the debate about gender today, I want you to see nothing short of demonic idolatry. It's trying to get you away from what God intended for us. It's the feminist answer to misogyny. Because, because woman has been mistreated historically, that's not deniable it is historically true. It is true today that women have been mistreated. They have been oppressed by the, the man. There's, no, there's, not, there's not a debate on that. But the response is not a good one. The response is not to say there is no such thing as gender. The response is to say both man and women find their dignity in the image of God. And they're different. Let's celebrate their differences. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. This passage answers the question, why are we here? What is our purpose? And that purpose is to reflect the image and likeness of God. In other words, we are never more human than when we are reflecting the glory of God by worshiping him. We are never more human than when we are worshiping him. Sin has since marred God's image on us, leaving only the faint flickers of the original glory. But God has renewed his people after the image of his son. Colossians 3, 9 through 11 says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. In the image of His Son, we are to continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge the name of Christ Jesus. What's the point? The purpose of our existence is to glorify God, i.e., reflect Him in all that we do and especially in our worship. And Christian, because the Holy Spirit lives within you, you are the only one who can properly reflect the glory of God as you reflect Christ's image in your life. The purpose of life is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. That is to be, and I love this word, and so many Christians are afraid to use it, and I'm not. It is to be happy. Happy. The old curmudgeon pastor, there's a difference between happiness and joy. Yes, letters, they're the same thing. You know how I know that? Go and read the Greek lexicons. Greek word for happiness, oh, it's joy, it's gladness. Go read gladness, oh, it's joy and happiness. Go read happiness, it's joy and gladness. They're synonymous. Christians are so miserable while they're serving God. We are to be happy. We are to enjoy his statutes. We are to not see God as the cosmic killjoy, but as the heavenly Father who loves his children. The purpose of our existence is to glorify God and enjoy him. And we do this in worship. Number two, the purpose of worship is to, the second purpose of worship is to respond accordingly to the grace of God. I. Howard Marshall says, worship is the human response to a gracious God, and it needs to be placed in this context if it is to be properly understood. So let's, let's begin with this. I heard this past week that there is one of the founders of artificial intelligence is going to create his own synthetic religion built in zeros and ones, right, built on technology. He's going to create his own synthetic religion. That is based from the presumption that man creates religion. But man doesn't create religion. You say, but that's not what my professor at FIU says. That's because your professor at FIU is not living by the word of God. God creates worship. Worship is a responsibility to what God has done it is the right acknowledgement of all that God has done Andrew Hill says this despite the majesty and perfection of God God's person and character Hebrew worship would have been misplaced if God were impotent to act to intervene in the experiences of life on behalf of his worshipers. Hence, the activity of God in human history served as both a basis for Hebrew worship and justification of the worship of the particular God, Yahweh. The Ark of the Covenant was the most holy vessel in ancient Israel, but it contained something on the inside of it. Everything that it contained, Aaron's rod that budded, The Ten Commandments and the manna were all a reminder of what God had done for his people. So that before the ark of God came in, they would sing and proclaim what God had done. And one of the problems in our lives is that we don't see what God has done unless there is a tickling of our spine. We think that God has forsaken us if we're still driving a Nissan Cube. And we forget the fact that that Nissan Cube has lasted for 10 years. What happened to the Israelites when they were in the desert? Their sandals, I just wanted to show you my socks. Their sandals lasted for 40 years. And we don't think God loves us until we get LeBron James's new Nikes. We have to worship God. God is a response to what he's done for us. It is so true that humans always are more inclined to talk about the one bad thing than the myriad of good things. How often does the, does the complaint department or the, the recognition department at, the, at, at any particular store get your servant did a great job today? No, they only ever get it when they do something bad. We are to respond to what God's done. Worship is the appropriate response to the mighty acts of God throughout history. Number one, creation. How many of you stop and appreciate creation on a daily basis? We look at phones and TVs and, our, and computers and our life is synthetic and we never stop to look up at the stars. Listen to me. One of the best things that could happen to this city is that we lose power. We are alienated from the creation. When do you go camping? And look up at the stars. The Bible says that God put those there to govern the night. The moon is there. It's, it's beautiful. Now, we all, we all stop to watch the eclipse. It was a great moment. But David says, the heavens declare the glory of God day by day. Don't look past the creation. Worship God by what he has made. What about his covenant? Do we worship God in his covenant? That God Almighty would enter into an agreement with the sinners like us It's a wonderful act of grace. What about his Christ? Do we appreciate his Christ? There is no greater impetus for us to respond to God's work than his Christ. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. A parent, any parent in this world knows they would give their life like that for their children. It's not even a question. And God gives us his son. And we need in order to get us through those doors and name it and claim it gospel. We need more. We need more than that. That every bad deed that you've done that only you and God know about is forgiven at the cross and you get eternal life and you need more than that America. You need more. You need a health, wealth, and prosperity. You need more. What if you never get it and you die young and you die poor? But you have his Christ. Don't you see that's a better portion? For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? God has bought back your soul through his Christ. He's given us his communication, scripture. We don't have to ask who is God. We know. We can read the holy words. Someone says, well, what about the Quran? Isn't that scripture? Or what about the Bhagavad Gita or the Upanishads? Aren't those scriptures? Go read them. Go read them. And read the word of God and you tell me. The Holy Spirit will tell you very clearly which one is the word of God. Psalm 96, one through four. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. If I have to convince you of that truth, you may not know him. Number three. We are to ascribe, the third purpose of worship is to ascribe, that is attribute, glory to God's name. Look at John 4.16, really quickly, 4.16. This is the story of Jesus at the well, John 4.16. I'm going to skip down you know the story Jesus tells the woman the Samaritan woman a Samaritan is a is according to Jews a half breed they intermarried with the pagan uh, cultures and Jews have forsaken them and so Jesus talking to a a woman and B, a Samaritan woman is very scandalous but nonetheless listen to what Jesus is going to tell her she he tells her that she has a a she has five husbands that is that she's living in sin and then Jesus says to her, she says, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. The woman, like so many, are giving glory to a God that they do not know. It doesn't matter that a person worships if the object of their worship is not the one true God. Don't be impressed by the fact that people are, quote-unquote, religious. If they're not worshiping the one true God. It does not matter how one worships how, so not only that they worship, but how they worship if they do not worship by the power of the Spirit or in truth of the knowledge of God's revelation found only in the self-revelation of Jesus Christ. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Listen to the woman's response. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. She admits that she lives in the darkness about God. Worship proclaims the Messiah. Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am He. Matt Boswell says, Apart from the revelation and initiation of the Trinity, worship is impossible. Without the wisdom of the Father that is the revelation of God and the work of the Son and the presence of the Spirit, we cannot worship God. The fourth purpose of worship is to proclaim the truth about God. Up until this point, I've said very little about the mode and the means of worship, and I'm going to address that in other sermons, but all worship and preaching in prayer or singing must proclaim the truth about God and must be done according to His own prescriptions. God gives two commands to begin the Ten Commandments. I'm the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not have any God before me. And the second is like it. Do not make any graven images and worship them. In other words, as John Lynn says, the first two commandments boil down to this simple truth. Do not worship false gods and do not worship God falsely. The point is that both the object of our worship and the posture of our worship matter to God. Many of our churches are offering a strange fire unto the Lord that He has not prescribed. Saul was rejected as king for worshiping God falsely. When God came to him, he said, but didn't you look at the zeal of my heart? Essentially. Didn't you look at my heart? I, I, I wanted, when God comes to Saul, I wanted to do the right thing. I mean, I offered sacrifices to you. That's, Jesus, God says, that's not what I told you to do. Oh, but I'm going to improve on worship. That's not what I told you to do. Trust that God knows what he wants better than you. And follow his prescription for worship. Many of us are worshiping, we don't even know who we're worshiping today. Today. This point is illustrated by Bob Coughlin, the songwriter and arranger of Sovereign Grace Ministries. He tells a little story. He says, let's say you and I run into each other at Starbucks, and you start telling me how much you've enjoyed getting to know my son, Jordan. I'm delighted. You go on to describe him as a five-foot-two saxophonist who has an avid interest in cooking Italian food and playing cricket. I give you a funny look. You must be thinking of someone else. Jordan is a six-foot-tall drummer who loves to eat, not cook, Italian food. And though he excels in many sports, cricket isn't one of them. But you continue extolling a short, sax-playing, pasta-cooking cricket player as you repeat several times, he's just a great guy. Such praise would be meaningless because it would be based on inadequate and inaccurate information about my son. Your doctrine of Jordan, quote-unquote, would be wrong. And however strong your appreciation, I think you'd like him more after discovering what he's really like. Many people are excited about a God who is not the God of the Bible. He's not the name-it-and-claim-it God. He's the name it and it exists or it doesn't exist God. He's not an I'm okay, you're okay God. He's the you're not okay God who makes you righteous through his son. He's not the God of every religion. He is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the one who shows mercies to thousands who worship Him alone. He's not an impersonal force who rewards good with good and bad with bad. He is the Word, creating all things by divine fiat and from nothing. He is the God in whom all meaning and purpose and truth Exist He's not karma. He is the God who loved us while we were yet sinners. Listen to me. if you don't know that about God, you are missing the better God of the Bible. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Finally. The last purpose of worship is to proclaim God's salvation to all nations. John Piper has famously said, missions exist because worship doesn't. In other words, the reason why we go and proclaim God is because people aren't worshiping Him. Psalm 96.4 says, declare God's glory among the nations. His marvelous works among all the peoples. Psalm 67.3, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Matthew 28.20, the very mission of the church is to teach all the world to worship God. Worship is exceedingly important. What is the application then? As we leave, let me give you four things that you can do today to begin to worship God according to the purposes of worship. Number one, seek your ultimate meaning in life in worshiping God, not yourself. Commit this day to make worship God-centered and not you-centered. Obey. God says, I want obedience over all of your sacrifices. You can keep them. Just give me obedience. Don't ask, what can God give me Ask what you can give to God. Trust that when you begin to live your life outside of yourself and for others and for Him, that you are going to find ultimate meaning. It's what you're already doing for things that aren't God. Better that you do it for someone who is God. You know what happened When men and women chased careers and money in 2008, you know what happened when the money fell and the money was gone? Their God died, and they lost all meaning for life. Men were jumping out of sky rises. They were jumping out of their penthouses headfirst because there was no meaning for life. They were pulling guns out of their out of their drawers and blowing their brains out because there was no meaning to life anymore. They were worshiping the wrong God. And this happens in everything. Worship the eternal God who will never leave you nor forsake you who all His promises are yes in amen in His Son, Jesus Christ. Number two, dwell. I say dwell. Dwell. Think. Dwell on God's mighty works and in the hope that He is able to do exceedingly more than you can ever expect. Dwell on it. As you're driving home, Today, instead of looking up at the lottery sign and fantasizing about all the things you would buy if you won that money, or the pretty girl on the sign, or the handsome fella on the sign, think about what God has done. His mighty works. Think about Him. Day daydream about God and His works. Number three, use your worship as a testimony to your faith. Do not consider Sunday morning your duty. Consider it your spoil. None of us deprive ourselves of our spoil. First thing we do on Friday night after a long week is we make ourselves a cocktail, put on a little bit of jazz, and sit down in our hot tub. We don't miss our spoil. Worship is your spoil. It is the day where you get to come in with your brothers and sisters and see the God who you love glorified and magnified. When we leave here, we're gonna put on our, we're gonna turn on our our smart devices and they're gonna tell us about a world in chaos. And all through the week, you're gonna hear about a world in chaos with problems that can't be solved. And we're going to come in here once a week and twice a week, hopefully on Wednesdays, and we're going to spoil ourselves with knowing, with knowing what? Everything is solved in Christ. Spoil ourselves. Some of you might be saying, what a bill of goods. If you're saying that, you cannot have the Holy Spirit in you. Read the Psalms. Tell me that's not what David said. Lastly, know God's Son that you might know God. If you're saying this morning, you know, this is a bill of goods, this can't all be true, I've seen how Christians live. Some of them live in dire consequences. Their lives are being persecuted. They constantly give away their money. They do all of these things that can't, they suffer, that can't be better. It can't be good. I want to offer to you, I want to offer to you the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Here's how John said it he said it very simply No one no one who denies the Son has the Father. Maybe you don't sing these songs about the Son or about the Father because you don't have the Son. You say, but at that youth rally in 2000, I came forward, but what have you done for God? Christianity has lived out. Yes, salvation is by faith alone, but it is not a faith that is alone. Have you received Christ? You can't worship God without having the Son. John simply says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. But whoever acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Maybe this morning you're not sure whether you know the Son. I want to invite you to talk to me about coming to know the Son so that you might worship God in spirit and in truth. Worship takes a Trinitarian act of God It is directed towards God. It is through the righteousness of the Son. And it is by the Spirit. And the only way to worship God is through faith and confession of faith in Jesus Christ. I want to invite you after the service in just a moment. I'm going to be standing in the back. And if you want to come and talk to me about how you can be saved, I am here. Maybe you don't do it today. You know, there's no guarantee that you have the rest of the day. But I'll be here every day of every week. You can call me at any moment. I would love nothing more than to teach you or show you how you can have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ our Savior. Father, it is foolishness to think that I can impart to anyone, salvation. That is your work. That's your work. The only thing I can do is implore men and women to repent, believe, and be baptized. And to follow you. I can't do anything other than that. The old adage is true, Father. You can lead the horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That's true about me. It is not true about you. You can make us drink of the life-giving water where we will thirst no more. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit through the reading of your Word, through the preaching of your Word would impart life to men, women, and children here today. That they would pledge their lives to you That they would worship with us here every Sunday. They would worship you in the hedges and the highways and byways. And that we would be a fire for you in this world. I pray that you would do this, Lord. You have to do the work. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.